Today we're beginning a new verse-by-verse series of preaching through the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is an action-packed history of the birth of the church and the first 60 years of the church's history. It's an action-packed book, as I have indicated, and we're going to learn some things, timeless principles about church and church growth from this book of Acts. We're going to see, for one thing, we're going to see the WIFE acronym I've talked about with you before, W for worship, I for instruction, F for fellowship, and E for evangelism. And just let me say it again, that the book of Acts is both a birth announcement for the church when she was zero years old, and it's a diary of the development and growth of the church for the first 60 years of the church's life. So a birth announcement and a 60-year diary of the first years of the church. I've entitled the series Church Zero to 60. I'm hoping that will remind you of a fast car that can accelerate from zero to 60, Because the accelerated growth of the Church of Jesus Christ was phenomenal in the book of Acts, as we will see in due time. So what I'd like to take you to this morning is one key verse, Acts 1.8. And Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll look at a second key verse, Acts 2.42. And then we'll go back and start our verse-by-verse preaching through the book of Acts a week from next week, Lord willing. I should tell you that I'm changing something. You're getting a drum roll, please. I've been preaching from the New American Standard Bible since 1981. That's longer than I've been married. But I'm going to switch today and start preaching out of the New King James Version because my eyes can't see the print in my New American Standard Bible. So I've got this thicker Bible with a good English translation of the Greek and the Hebrew. And starting today, we're going to start looking at scriptures from the pulpit, from the New King James Version. So I want to begin by reading this first key verse in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. Listen carefully to the word of God. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These literal words were spoken by our resurrected Savior after he had appeared alive from the dead for 40 days and went back to his father. And so just before he airlifted back to the right hand of the father after dying for our sins, being resurrected from the dead, and being seen alive by many witnesses for 40 days, he ascended. And just before he ascended, he said these these words. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Church, I would submit that the last words of Jesus should be given first priority by us. The last thing that Jesus said before he went back to heaven ought to be given first priority by Calvary Bible Church and all the churches that name the name of Christ. And so we're going to look at this key verse together, and we ought to be encouraged that what Jesus said last before going back to his Father gives us both the promise of power and the promise of progress in the work of the church. The Holy Spirit came 10 days later in the day of Pentecost and has been with the church, resident with every body, or rather born-again believer, permanently, that guarantees there will be progress in the work that Jesus has left the church to do, which is to take the cross and the empty tomb message of Jesus Christ to the world until all the ends of the earth. J. Oswald Smith, a 
very respected pastor in Toronto years back said, why should anyone hear the gospel twice when there are many who have never heard it once? And so we have power in the Holy Spirit and assurance of progress in getting the gospel out and in making disciples of all the nations based on this verse. So I'm going to read it again. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This verse is key for many reasons, some of which I've just told you, but another key reason why verse 8 of chapter 1 is a key verse to understand the whole book is that this verse gives us an outline of all the book of Acts because it chronicles the gospel coming to Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts will chronicle the historical fact of how the gospel of Jesus Christ first permeated Jerusalem. Then it permeated the provinces of Judea and this country region of Samaria. And in the time of the first 60 years of the book of Acts, it even permeated the world, the known world in the Mediterranean basin. It's an outline to the whole book. Now, I want you to see in this one key verse, 1-8, four essentials for the early church that remain essentials for our church, that remain four essentials for the 21st century church. You ready? The first essential is the Holy Spirit and his power. That's absolutely essential to what we do in the name of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit and his power. If you look at verse 8, do you see the phrase, you shall receive power when? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. They didn't have that power they needed until the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, came and indwelt them permanently. And every born-again believer through all the centuries since the time of Acts chapter 2 has received the Holy Spirit and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit permanently. And so the first essential is the Holy Spirit and his power. But there's a second essential for the church in this one verse. And it is the actual cornerstone being the Lord Jesus Christ. The cornerstone of this building and the gathering of believers who come to this building is the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, nothing else. It's not a pastor. It's not a program. It's not a history. It's Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone of this church and he's the cornerstone of every church that believes the Bible and preaches the gospel. It says in the verse, you shall be witnesses to me. You can't go any higher than the cornerstone, the Savior of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, coming again. The cornerstone of our church and the cornerstone of the church is Christ. That's essential too. Essential three is evangelism. I see it in verse eight. You shall be witnesses to me, not witnesses to your better life now, not witnesses to how to be wealthy, happy, and wise. No, we are to be witnesses to Christ, the cornerstone. He is our message. He is our joy. He is our hope. And so evangelism is to be an essential of the church. Now, normal church growth in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, normal church growth is conversion growth. 
Churches are to grow numerically because people are getting saved as the people in the churches tell them the gospel, that Christ died for sins and arose from the dead. We want our church numerically to grow best and most by conversion growth. We have biological growth lately, and we thank the Lord for each baby that's been born to these precious families. We welcome these babies into our church and the life and fabric of what we do. But biological growth isn't the way the church in the book of Acts mostly grew. The way the church in the book of Acts mostly grew was by you and me and the believers back then sharing the gospel and inviting people to trust Christ. Conversion growth is New Testament normal growth for the church. But you know what? (laughs) It's not always seen that way. We see evangelism as a precious duty and a privilege But it's not always seen that way. In the neighborhood I used to live in, in Canada, there was a woman I played tennis with who was a nominal Presbyterian. I know there are born-again Presbyterians. One of them is my best, one of my best friends, Bryn McPhail, the pastor at the Kirk. I know there are plenty of born-again Presbyterians, but June wasn't born again, and it showed. And so I went to Thailand on a preaching ministry for two weeks, And the first morning I was back, on a Sunday morning, I was walking in my neighborhood as I customarily did and praying about the church service that day and the sermon God would preach through me. And she says, hey, Rob, you were in Thailand. Yes, ma'am. What were you doing in Thailand? I said, sharing the gospel and inviting Thai people to trust Jesus as their Savior. She said, why would you do that? I said, what do you mean? She says, they have a perfectly fine religion. You shouldn't be trying to convert anybody. Even evangelism, even among people who say they are Christians, can be a skunk in a garden party to those people. I said, June, do you realize why they have pagoda roofs in Thailand? The steep roofs that go to a point and then come down where we would have eaves trough and they scoop up in the air. I said, June, do you know why Thai people have those pagoda roofs? No. I said, because they believe that demons run the ridgepole of every house and building in Thailand and the only thing you can do is make them happy. And so if a, if a demon or demons are running the ridgepole of your business and they misstep, you have to give them a chance to fly back up to the ridgepole with the scoops. And if you don't please the demons, they'll get you. I said, not all religions are the same, June. I said, when you go to the airport in any Thai business, there is a bird feeder up high near the ceiling, and there's food, apples and figs and things like that in the birdhouse, and they stink. You know why they stink? Because they believe the demons are going to eat that food, and they don't. So after it stinks bad enough, they take down the smelly fruit and they put fresh fruit up. I said, June, not every religion is the same. Thai people are in bondage to demons. I said, June, do you know that the saying in Thailand is that Satan's home is hell, but his summer home is Thailand? Well, she didn't know whether to spit or wind or watch. Not all religions are the same. And some people who say they are Christians, nominal Christians, they are against evangelism. But it's an essential for our church, an essential for the early church. You know, George Barna, some of you know that he generates surveys to do with the evangelical church, not the nominal church. 
about the evangelical church in America. He does surveys. He did a recent survey, George Barna did, and he concluded, quote, almost half of practicing Christian millennials, that's describing young people age 25 to 40, the quote again, almost half of practicing Christian millennials age 25 to 40 say evangelism is wrong under every circumstance. These are claiming to be evangelical Christians. They believe that evangelism is wrong under every circumstance. Why? Because you don't force your beliefs on anybody else. And everybody's going to make heaven. Just get along. That's not what the Bible teaches. There is a, a path that is wide that leads to destruction and a path that is narrow that leads to eternal life in Christ. So the essentials we're seeing in this one verse are the Holy Spirit and its power, the actual cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and evangelism. We go to our fourth and final essential from verse 8 of chapter 1. It is world, world, discipleship, impact. The first church, the baby church, had the mandate, the expectation from Christ who formed the church that they would have a world discipleship impact, a world discipleship impact. You shall be, the verse says, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We have a big God, church, do you agree? We have a large God, and his plan is a large plan. Our God doesn't think in puny little plans. He thinks in vast and big plans. He has a world of persons, seven billion people on earth he wants. Hear the gospel. Will they? Are they? It's an essential of the church, that we have world discipleship income. Yes, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, is large, and the God is in charge. And it says in Mark 16, 15, which is a rephrasing of Matthew 28's Great Commission, Jesus, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We should not look at any person or any group of persons say they don't need the gospel. Like June in my neighborhood. She believed all of Thailand didn't need the gospel. And it was a waste of my time to go there. And it was audacious for me to go there to share the Christ. No, no, no. When God looks down on the globe of people he loves and sent his son to save, he wants his church to have world discipleship impact. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So we've seen four essentials. Let's make it up close and personal. How are we doing? Not how is another church down the road doing. Not how is the church in America doing. How is Calvary Bible Church NASA doing with these four essentials? Well, let's do a little diagnostic. Essential one is the Holy Spirit and his power. Do we see the Holy Spirit and his power in our ministries and in our lives? What would change, imagine, what would change if the Holy Spirit of God completely withdrew from your life 
And the Holy Spirit of God completely withdrew from my life, and the Holy Spirit completely withdrew from our church. What would that be like? What would that change? Oh, to God that we all would say everything. It would change everything if the Holy Spirit wasn't working through us. We might as well not have programs and ministries and worship services if the Holy Spirit were to be withdrawn from us as a group. But he won't be. Praise God. And so, in Zechariah 4, the latter part of verse 6, the point is made that the change that was necessary back then was not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, capital S, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angels, the Lord of hosts. Oh, to God that we would understand the power we have in the Holy Spirit resident in us to change us, to change our church, to change our city, to change our country, to change our world. The second essential after the Holy Spirit and his power is the actual cornerstone is Christ. No other cornerstone. So I wonder, church family, does our church glorify anyone or anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ? That's a loaded question. Does our church glorify anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church? What do you mean, pastor? Do we glorify our church's history? Do we glorify our church's traditions? Do we glorify our assets and all the properties we own on this real estate? Do we glorify our best-loved ministries that we would never like to see go? Does our church trust in anyone or in anything more than Christ the cornerstone? Do we trust in money more than Christ or human connections more than Christ or alarm systems more than Christ or insurance policies more than Christ? He's the cornerstone. He must, he's deserving of our complete and highest trust and glory like we've given him in this service. And so we remember together that Christ is our cornerstone. He's not our spare tire. He's not there just to be called upon when we're in a fix or a mess. <laughs> he's our cornerstone. He's the bedrock upon which this church is built. We must believe this. We must think this. We must preach this. We must teach this. We must tell others this. And we must minister in any ministry we have as individuals as though Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Amen? Essential three is evangelism. How are we doing? With evangelism. Proverbs 11, verse 30b says, And he who wins souls is wise. Winning a soul means leading someone to Christ for salvation. He or she who wins souls is wise. How wise are you? <laughs> How wise are me? When was the last time I led somebody to saving faith in Christ? I think it was about a month ago for me. When was the last time that you led someone to Christ? That's a personal question. Last time you led someone to saving faith in Christ. He who wins souls is wise in the eyes of heaven, and they're the only eyes that count. 
You know, the only thing that you and I can take to heaven with us is persons we have led to saving faith in Christ. There are no bumper hitches on any funeral hearses. I've checked. The only thing a Christian can bring with him or herself to heaven is the persons they've shared the gospel with and the Holy Spirit has saved. Those people go to heaven with you. Praise God. When did you last win a soul? It's an essential of the church. Essential four is world discipleship impact. In our corporate ministries, in our individual ministries, we must not settle for anything less than producing disciples. We're calling them fully committed followers of Christ. Jesus is not some little nice little thing that's added to a life. No, Jesus Christ is the only Savior provided for sinners. He's worthy of being Lord of lords and King and King, King and Kings in your life and in the lives you lead to Christ. And our missionaries are an extension of this local assembly. World discipleship impact is what God plans and wills and works to do through us. And so either we must send missionaries or we must go. Those are the options. Either we send missionaries with prayer or we ourselves go to the mission field. I remember a missionary standing in the pulpit, my Canadian pulpit. He was a missionary for over 40 years. And he said, do you know what the singular most, the singular most likely reason that the wave of senior missionaries who are dying and going to heaven or retiring, that they are not replenished? I was all ears. He said, do you know the primary reason why young missionaries are not replacing the ones that die or retire? He said, because their parents won't let them go to the field. If God moved your child to take the gospel to Africa or Great Britain or India, would you encourage that or would you say, you really want to go so far from home? I won't see my grandchildren. World discipleship impact. So now we've covered the four essentials. Let's move to three missionary journeys very quickly. The book of Acts records three missionary journeys. Why? Why does the book of Acts cover three missionary, I stress that, missionary journeys? Because one, God is a missionary God. God only had one son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God sent him to be a cross-cultural missionary to earth. God is a missionary God. Second, God's church is to be a missionary church. That's why three missions journeys are recorded in the book of Acts, because God's church is to be a missionary church. Churches are to be outward and reaching, not just to their country, but beyond to other countries of the world. Churches are to be outward reaching and not inward retreating. You want to kill a church? Just only think of yourselves and have an inward focus. Do I like this? Do I like that? Are my needs being met? Are my needs not being met? You want to kill a church? 
just have an inward preoccupation with no concern for the lost in the city, the country, or the world. God is a missionary God. God's church is to be a missionary church. Mike Sechura writes, and I quote, the mark of a great church is not its seating capacity, it's its sending capacity. It's true. Because God is a missionary God. And if God just celebrated more and more seats without an outreach in a church building, he'd be inconsistent because he made his son a missionary. He wants our church to be a sending, a missionary sending church. And so the measure of the greatness of our church is not how many can seat, be sit here, how many can be sent from here. God's church is to be a missionary church. Oswald J. Smith, I alluded to earlier, pastor in Toronto, now with the Lord, quote, any church, this is a hard-hitting one, any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the great commission, make disciples of all the nations, has forfeited its biblical right to exist. That's right between the eyes. Pastor Smith believed and put his church's money and people out as proof that any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission, making disciples of all the nations, has forfeited its biblical right to exist. <laughs> Oswald J. Smith would say, you don't have a missions program, you don't send missionaries, you don't evangelize a lot, stop being a church. You're playing games. That's right between your eyes. The third reason there are three missionary journeys in the book of Acts is that the gospel is too good and too revolutionizing to be limited to one nation or to one language or to one race or to one region. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so good that we ought not limit it to one of anything, but for, for everybody. In the future, a glorious scene in heaven is given to us in Revelation 5, 9, and 10, a future scene. And they, the redeemed, sang a new song saying, you, Lord Jesus Christ, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. That's the end play. That's the point. That's what God has promised. So why don't we get on board? The gospel is too good, too revolutionizing to just keep it to ourselves, our races, our nation, our languages. I have an encouragement for you. In this church age, which started with the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and will end with the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, in this choice window in which we Minister, whosoever will may come to Christ. Whosoever will may come to Christ. And they are. They are coming to Christ. According to Operation World's evangelical growth rate, listen carefully. According to Operation World's evangelical growth rate statistics, since the year 2010, that's 11 years ago, since the year 2010 and onwards, 
as of the year 2020, that was last year, there are 705 million, 774,967 evangelical Christians in the world, defined as we would define them, born again, not members of certain denominations, but those who are trusting Christ alone for salvation. There's over 705 million of us in the world, but it gets better. That was up 18,350,149 from the 2019 number. 2020 went up by 18,350,000. Now, this is, this is something. That means that on average, around the world, there were on average 50,274 persons who came to Christ for salvation. If this holds up for the year we're in, that means today, on average, 50,274 persons turn from sin, self, and Satan to the Savior by faith. That deserves an amen. <laughs> that deserves a big amen. So you know what? Keep sharing the gospel. Keep telling people about how to get to heaven. God has readied people by his spirit to trust Christ. You say, well, I shared with my neighbor once and she wasn't interested. Share again. Pray and share again. If I did a survey, and I won't take the time, of how many of you believed on Jesus Christ to be your Savior the first time you heard the gospel, it would be about 10% of the saved people here today. That means 90% of you took more than hearing the gospel once for you to get saved. Keep sharing your faith. Wouldn't it be great to have contributions that our witnessing would add to the 50,274 persons who come to saving faith in Christ on average every day? That's amazing. And so can't you see that the baby church who became 60 years old by the end of the book of Acts, can't you see that zero to 60 doesn't even begin to mark the acceleration of the gospel and disciple-making Back then and today, 50,274 persons today on average. Let's pray. Lord, be quiet ourselves. You've told us a lot in one verse. And the temptation would be like it might be every Sunday to say, well, that was a good sermon he finished on time. Now let's go to lunch. Lord, deliver us from self-absorption. We pray, Heavenly Father, that the essentials that you have given to the church would be found in our church, the Holy Spirit and his power, the actual cornerstone being Christ, evangelism and world discipleship impact. Oh, we long for these things for Calvary Bible Church. And Lord, we believe that you've included the missionary journeys in the book of Acts to spur us on to missionary effort because you're a missionary God. Teach us that, Lord. And you want us as a church to be your missionary church. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, which is your power in Greek, your dynamite unto salvation for all who will believe. Maybe not hoard the gospel presuming someone's already saved when we're not sure or writing them off because they rejected the gospel once when we shared it. 
Lord, there are a lot of persons in our great country that know Christian jargon and lingo, but who do not trust the Savior for forgiveness or heaven. Forgive us, Lord, when we presumed that our witness either was pointless, redundant, or a bother. Lord, we thank you that you are a missionary God who writes about three missionary journeys in Acts because although the world is extremely darkened by sin and fallen into sin, the world is still partially open to you and the gospel. Thank you for the astounding average figure of 50,274 persons will come to Christ on average every day. Tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and next Lord's Day if you do not come for us first. Lord, help us to be your witnesses in Nassau, in the family islands, in the Caribbean, and to the rest of the whole world. Forgive us when we've been slack on this. Light a fire in my heart and light a fire in my friends' hearts for your glory. And we pray this in the name above every name, the name of the Lord of the church, the Savior of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.